going to look at one place in the Bible, among many, by the way, but one place that I think can help. Now, we're kicking off this series today in the book of Titus, a letter that Paul wrote years ago. And the Apostle Paul is addressing some very specific issues among the churches in Crete. And one of Paul's main goals in writing this letter is to address behavior within the church. How ought people in the church to act? And we'll see today that he doesn't just prescribe behavior, but he actually shows us how to get there. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to Titus. We're going to start right in chapter 1, start in verse 1. And I think it will be on the screen as well. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read through verse 4. So listen carefully with me to what God's Word says. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So whenever we read a letter in the New Testament, whenever you read a letter in the New Testament in the Bible, it's important to remember that they're occasional documents. They're occasional documents. In other words, some series of circumstances gave rise to Paul writing a letter. He didn't just sit down one afternoon and decide to codify some theology for fun. right? He had a purpose in mind. So as we introduce this series today, and before we get to my question... I want to look at some of the background of Titus, the occasion for Titus. So Paul probably wrote this letter towards the end of his ministry, most likely in the mid-60s AD. And Paul had completed a missionary journey to the island of Crete, which resulted in the establishment of some young churches there. And Paul left Titus there to watch over the young churches. And as he says later on in verse 5, he says he wants Titus to put in order what was left unfinished. Now, we don't know a ton about Titus, but we do know he was a fairly close companion of Paul's. Uh, He's mentioned in his other letters, specifically 2 Corinthians and Galatians. And so by this time, Titus has probably been associated with Paul for for a while. And we also know that he was a Gentile. He He was not Jewish. And therefore, he was not circumcised. And so Paul uses him, actually, in the book of Galatians as an example for how Christians are not bound to Jewish law and customs, and as a test case to show the success of reaching the Gentiles with the gospel. And so if you read through Titus, which I encourage you to do, by the way, over the next few weeks, it won't take more than five minutes, so you can read it every day, and you'll have plenty of time to spare. Uh, It's pretty clear that the reason Paul writes this letter, the occasion for the letter, is that false teaching is starting to infect these young churches in Crete. And this is Paul's focus for much of the book. So Paul's writing a letter to a trusted co-worker to offer him instructions and also imbue him with his authority to eradicate and rebuke this false teaching in the church and promote sound doctrine. 
And it's interesting to consider the backdrop here, though, because this, this letter, it's meant for churches in Crete. Okay, and Crete had a reputation. Uh, Crete, uh, you may know, is this long and narrow island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And it was inhabited thousands of years before Paul ever visited. But numerous authors in history indicate that its people weren't exactly known for their good behavior. In this letter, Paul himself affirms what an earlier philosopher named Epimenides said 600 years earlier, that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And other first century philosophers and historians like Cicero, Josephus, Polybius, they all note how Crete is famous for piracy, for robbery, for looting. And it's also a fiercely tribal society with intense family loyalties and tribal pride that leads to all sorts of infighting and family wars and vendettas. And actually, this, this reputation persists to today. Go to the Wikipedia page and look about Crete, and it actually mentions that in culture. That's known for the, the, this intense family ties. And so we know this background it helps explain Paul's letter a little bit, and we can infer a little more from Paul's purpose in writing. I mean, Crete, an island with a reputation, is going to need good leadership and good teaching. The social context in Crete is not very helpful for living out Christian ethics, Christian behavior. And it's one of the reasons that Paul so focused on godly behavior in this, in this letter. So as I've set the stage a little bit here, what does Paul actually have to say in this, in this introduction? And I want to propose to you that Paul's main point in this introduction is actually the central point of the whole letter. And it's found in the second half of the first verse. So what is it? Paul says, uh, he's a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So don't get hung up on the word elect here. It's just a common way of referring to God's people. What I want you to get hung up on is this. Paul is saying that a person's faith and knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. Now, in this letter and other letters that Paul has written, truth is just a, a stand-in. It's just a proxy for gospel. It's the heart of Paul's message, who Jesus is, what he's done through his death and resurrection. So faith in this, knowledge of this truth, Paul says, leads to a godly life. And to Paul, these two things are, are inseparable. He uses it later in the letter as evidence that people who don't have genuine faith or knowledge in God, how, how you can pick them out. In verse 16, he says that some people claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They're not living a godly life. Therefore, they must not know God. And this is no new theme in the Bible. I mean, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6. He's talking about a tree and its fruit, how you know a good tree from a bad tree. Good tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. In other words, you can see what's really inside a person by how they act. And this is what James is talking about in his letter when he says that faith without works is dead. If you claim to have faith in the gospel, but don't act like it, you don't really have faith in the gospel. 
And this is an essential part of Paul's message, and really part of the, the whole New Testament. But it's a central point in our text today and much of this letter of Titus. Because Paul understands and is getting at here a fundamental truth. We behave like we believe. We behave like we believe. And by believe here, like Paul, I'm referring to both what we believe in faith, the things we cannot see, and what we know. And not just knowing intellectually either. Right? Paul, when he uses this word knowledge here, he's talking about both intellectual knowledge and the kind you get through experience, the things that you get on a, on a gut level because you've experienced them. Right? I mean, I, could, I can read a pamphlet on what it's going to be like to get my wisdom teeth out and know what it's like to get my wisdom teeth out, but then I get my wisdom teeth out and I know what it's like to get my wisdom teeth out. Right? Two different types of knowledge, both knowledge. Both of those are in mind here when Paul uses that word. And so these things, faith, knowledge, and experience, they form our beliefs. And Paul knows that we behave like we believe. The things we know, both intellectually through experience, the things we have faith in, they are what determine our actions. And it's, it's really kind of obvious if you think about it. You're going to act on the things you believe and know. I mean, if you drove here today and you wore a seatbelt... You chose to do that because of your beliefs, right? And maybe you know that it's law in Massachusetts to wear a seatbelt, and you believe it'd be unpleasant to get a ticket for not wearing one. Maybe you're aware of all the statistics out there that show how seatbelts save lives. Uh, Maybe you're just listening to what your mom and dad said, right? And you consider them trustworthy, so you take their advice. Whatever the sources, all these make up your beliefs about seatbelt wearing, and you chose to wear one. It drove your actions. We behave like we believe. And this is why we can recognize it so quickly when somebody claims to believe one thing and yet does another. Right? You're talking with somebody, you you meet someone, and they tell you that they're a a triathlete with a a PhD in oncology, and they light up a cigarette. Hang on a second. I'm starting to question your credentials a little bit here. Seriously? Right? We know something's, something's awry there. And for Paul, uh, like the rest of the writers in the New Testament, he understands that faith in the gospel, knowledge of the truth, necessarily leads to a godly life. This is actually part of what it means to be saved. Salvation is a godly life. It's freedom from our former way of life. It's obedience, walking in obedience with God. Obedience doesn't merit God's salvation. That's not how we get saved but it's part of God's very intentions in salvation, right? We're not just saved from something. We're saved to something. We're saved from sin and to holiness. The godly behavior isn't how we're saved, but it's why we're saved. And as American Christians, we tend to have a hole in this part of our theology. We're so paranoid about this work salvation thing. Forget that, like, Godly living is a necessary part of being a Christian, right? We can think of salvation, you know, accepting Jesus as just like getting over the hump, just, just getting in, so to speak, and it ends there, but it doesn't. And that's the beginning. Accepting Christ, being a Christian, is just the beginning. But this change in belief, in your beliefs, should result in godly living. 
because we behave like we believe. A few weeks ago when I was here on, on Palm Sunday, I said that in many ways, trusting Jesus is like trusting a surgeon. Right? I mean, would you trust a surgeon with your very life on the operating table, but not listen to his advice after the operation? Well, sure. I mean, you know what I'm doing when I'm anesthetized and I'm helpless. I'm utterly dependent on your expertise for my very survival. I'm bleeding. I could die. But no heavy lifting for four weeks after surgery? I don't know about that. I think I'm going to go work out. That doesn't doesn't just make sense, right? Hey, Jesus, I depend on you utterly for the eternal destiny of my soul. I trust that you died and rose again to secure for me the life that I was created for. But all that other stuff you said, well, you know, that I'm not, I, don't, I don't know about that so much. You see how odd that is? You believe all humankind is created in God's image and so deeply loved that God sent his own son so he could redeem them? And yet you slander other people? You mistreat them? You use them or manipulate them for your own gain? You're indifferent to the suffering of others? You believe that you're saved from sin and death by no merit of your own, that salvation's a free gift from God, and yet you act like you're somehow superior to people who don't believe like you do? That God saved you because you're so special, so smart, so righteous? You judge other people as if you need a Savior any less than them? You believe you're forgiven for all your failures and sins, yet you still hold grudges? You believe your real treasure is in heaven, yet you keep piling up wealth here on earth. You believe marriage is a reflection of Christ and the church, a holy covenant before God, and yet your spouse takes a back seat to your career. It's inconsistent. I think for a second of how many non-Christians, people who don't believe, you've met, who at least on the surface reject Christianity because of what they see in other Christians. What joy, what forgiveness, what purity, what love, what community. You guys are just as angry, petty, selfish, and miserable as the rest of us. No thanks. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, a man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and doctrine disagree, the mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. Why? Because we all know that we behave like we believe. So if you're like me, and you don't always believe, behave in a way that's consistent with what you say you believe, what's Paul's response? Something isn't right with your beliefs. Flip it around. If you want to change your behavior, you need to change your beliefs. And I think part of our struggle in changing our behavior is that we try to change our behavior without changing our beliefs. Just dealing with the surface. We're not dealing with what's underneath it. Or our beliefs go, they don't go deep enough to change our behavior, right? We don't, we don't really believe. 
Maybe all of us in here can pass the theology test, but that knowledge and our experience living in it hasn't gone deep enough into who we are to change our behavior. And I'm talking about the deepest depths of our hearts here. The kind of depth that we see in the introduction that we just read in verse 1. How does Paul identify himself? He says he's a servant of God, but that's just an English translation watering down the word underneath, which means slave. Paul recognizes that he is utterly God's. He's completely at his disposal. He has no rights to himself. He was bought with a price. He lives only for God. He doesn't say, Paul, born in Tarsus of the tribe of Benjamin, pupil of Gamaliel and Roman citizen. No. Paul, slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. He considers all the rest of that rubbish compared to knowing Christ, he says later. That's the kind of depth I'm talking about, where the first touch point of your identity is found in God. Like the apostle John in the gospel of John, how does he identify himself? The disciple who Jesus loved. Who are you? I'm the one who Jesus loves. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a father. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not a drummer, whatever. I'm somebody who Jesus loves. I'm God's servant. That kind of depth. So what do we do? I mean, how do we let these beliefs penetrate so deeply into us that our behavior, inside and out, changes to the godly life that we're called to? How do we live consistent lives? And I want to suggest today three ingredients that I see here in the text. This isn't an exhaustive list, but it's three things that we can see here in the text. Time, training, and hope. Time, training, and hope. And so first off, with time, let's realize that godliness, changing our beliefs, takes time. Our beliefs, especially the deep ones, take a long time to change. So I, I play drums. I've been playing drums since I was eight years old. And when I was in high school, I was in marching band, I was in jazz band, I was in percussion ensemble, <clears throat> and I studied under some very gifted but very broken men. And in their own brokenness, these men were terribly abusive, verbally and physically. And so a mistake in marching band was typically met with a brutal verbal assault, and it went personal too. Now, other times it was met with push-ups or having to stand still at attention for several minutes, which is not an easy thing to do when you've been carrying 30 pounds of drums for hours and mosquitoes are biting your legs and stuff like that, right? Anything less than perfection was utter failure. And these teachers knew how to cut deep and really tear us down. So for four years of my life, at a rather formative age, I learned that the only way I could earn the approval of these men, whom I deeply respected, was to be perfect. So fast forward about a decade, and now I accept Christ at age 25. Did that just evaporate for me? I mean, suddenly, I mean, I know that I don't have to be perfect to be loved and accepted. 
right? And, and, and by the most wonderful, admirable, respectable person in the universe, by God himself. Right? He already loves me and accepts me for who I am, not for who I should be. I could, have, I could have told you that a week into my walk with the Lord. But how did I behave? How did I act? Well, by God's grace, I've, I've grown. But do you think at that age 41, I might still struggle with perfectionism a little bit? It takes a long time. And that's just one area of my life. I mean, stretch that out to all my experiences, all the things I've learned in a distorted, fallen world among imperfect, broken people. What are your stories? Maybe you've struggled with your, your appearance, acne, your weight, whatever it is, in a world that places a premium on physical appearance and holds up a nearly unattainable standard for beauty. And so you're immersed in this day in and day out all your life. Peers making fun of you growing up. You're alone on prom night, whatever it is, right? So you lack confidence. You feel less than other people. So you turn to alcohol or drugs. You, you, you turn to promiscuity or trying to be the funniest person in the room all of the time, being defensive and bitter to get back at all that pain, whatever it is, to feel loved or to feel in control. Well, I mean, I can tell you now, like most other people in this room, that God, God thinks you're beautiful. He thinks you're lovely. He desires to be with you, to love you, to give you the life that he made you for. He doesn't look at you the way the world does. And this is God. This is God. There's no more admirable, wonderful person in the world. He's way more important and admirable than that cute guy or girl who, did, who rejected you in high school. Does a lifetime of that hurt just disappear? And we can have moments or seasons of our lives where we gain great ground and experience tremendous growth and healing in these places. But in the day-to-day-to-day, it's a long process. It takes time. Our beliefs come from deep places, and it takes time. And from the text today, it's fairly obvious that it takes time. Right? I mean, this letter exists. That's enough. I mean, why didn't the church in Crete just grasp and snap right to godly living once they believed? Paul wouldn't have needed this letter, would he? Clearly it takes time. But we've also noted that Paul shows us how behavior has to do with our faith, knowledge, and experience, right? And these things don't just materialize out of thin air. And this is the second thing. It takes time. It takes training. Faith and knowledge work together to produce godliness. It's a process, Right? Our knowledge comes from receiving good teaching, from being trained. And this is why later in Titus, Paul is going to talk about setting up leaders in the church who teach sound doctrine. Learning the truth takes training. You listen to sermons, go to your Bible studies, read your Bible, talk with people, etc. And experiencing the truth is training too. You position yourself in places where you can experience God. You pray, you listen, you worship. Uh, This is what we often call, you know, the spiritual disciplines. This is training in godliness. And our knowledge of God, our experience of him, is what's going to give our faith something to stand on. 
right? Because faith, faith can't exist in isolation. It needs something to stand on, right? If you met somebody for the first time on the street and they asked to borrow your car, chances are you're going to say, yeah, no thanks, right? Why? I mean, you don't have much faith in them. Why don't you have any faith in them? You don't know anything about them. You have no experience with them. What if your best friend asks? Right? You're probably going to let them. Why? You have faith in them. Your faith is standing on something. It's standing on your knowledge and experience with that friend. My best friend, sure. I've experienced her trustworthiness firsthand. She's never been in an accident. She's reliable. I would give her my car. Right? Your faith is standing on your knowledge and experience. And so our knowledge and experience can build faith. And the more you know and experience God, the more faith you have in him. So the more likely you are to trust what he says, to do what he says. In other words, the more likely you are to obey him. And what happens? What happens when you obey the Lord, when you listen to him? You experiencing him more. You grow in knowledge of him more. You get to know him better. Your faith grows, you trust more often, more consistently, so you walk in greater obedience, so you know him better, so your faith grows. It's this cycle that keeps building on itself. It takes time, it takes training. And finally, and I, I really wish I had another T word here, right? Time train for people who like consonants. I, I like, exhausted the thesaurus search, tried... <laughs> You know, I tried other languages, you know, like, oh, you know, in Swahili, the word for, it takes hope. TTH, time training, it takes hope. And I mean biblical hope here too, right? And when we talk about hope uh, in the West, we often think of it uh, like a kind of a wish. And I hope I win the lottery, right? Not so in Paul's writings. For Paul, hope is an expectation. It's something you look forward to, right? And so getting our beliefs to change deep inside us takes hope. Why does it take hope? Because hope is our motivation. Our expectation, the thing we look forward to, is going to be the wind in our sails. It'll be what helps us persevere through all the time and all the training that it takes to get our beliefs deep enough to change our behavior. Right? A, a smoker who quits smoking successfully did so because they had hope. They had the expectation of feeling healthier. The expectation of dramatically reducing their risk for any number of serious illnesses, right? The expectation of longer, healthier life. That's what got them through it. And it's no different for us in godliness. It takes hope. But it takes hope in the right place. We never talked about Paul's other purpose in the introduction. I stopped after verse 1. We've already discussed how Paul says he's an apostle to further the faith and knowledge of God's people. But he says something else, doesn't he, in verse 2. He says he's an apostle to instill the hope of eternal life. This is hard, again, to see in in the English. It just says, in the hope of eternal life, at the beginning of verse 2. And there's some grammar under here. 
but it indicates that it's actually a second purpose. It's a parallel purpose to Paul's. He wants to grow people in faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ and to instill them with the hope of eternal life. And he is God's servant to do these things. He adds even two bits of information later on in verse 3 to fill others with the security of this, to know why this hope is secure. And so your hope needs to be placed in eternal life, in, in the next life, in heaven, in the Lord, in something eternal, outside of yourself. Right? Is your hope, is your hope wrapped up in this life? I mean, if so, it's not going to be big enough. It's not a big enough hope to drive those beliefs down deep. I mean, are your hopes, your dreams, your, your fantasies, are they about the next life, or are you mostly thinking about this one? Oh, once I make a little more money. Oh, once I get out of college. Oh, once I get a job. Oh, once I get married. Oh, once I get a house. Oh, once I have kids. Oh, once the kids leave the house. Oh, once I retire. And when was the last time, and be honest, when was the last time you looked forward to heaven? And this doesn't mean you disregard this life or you can't look forward to getting married or having kids or anything like that. It means your end game is the next life. That's your greatest joy and hope, right? I mean, we need to raise the bar. Heaven, perfection, right? Every need, every longing, completely and fully satisfied, beyond what we can imagine, Every little ailment, every, every sin, shame, fear, whatever it is, all gone, none of it, not even a trace of it, complete perfection, perfect existence with God, what we were created for, our very purpose. I won't even be wearing glasses in heaven, right? It's, it's going to be perfect. Raise the bar. Something far better awaits us on the other side of eternity. We need a God-sized hope to fuel us in the effort to change our beliefs, to get them deep in us so our behavior changes. C.S. Lewis said it, said it pretty succinctly. He said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. So do you want to change your behavior? Change your beliefs. And change them deeply. Because we behave like we believe. And it takes time, it takes training, and hope to change those beliefs. So as we respond today and start to wrap up, and I'll invite the band to come up, uh, let me offer uh, an encouragement and some suggestions for how we can respond. And so first, uh, the, the good biblical theologians among us here today have probably noted by now that I haven't said anything about the Holy Spirit. And this is mostly because it's not right in the text right here, but I would be remiss if I didn't note that the Holy Spirit, God who dwells within us, is fully devoted to changing our beliefs and behavior. And this is part and parcel of what he does. 
He reminds us of the truth. He encourages us. He convicts us. He changes us from the inside. So please don't walk away from here today thinking that godly living is merely a matter of human will. No, it's empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is God we're talking about here, right? So be encouraged. God is literally all in on this with you. Right? Did you get that? He's inside you. He's all in, right? <laughs> Did I, I worked on that gesture. God's all in, right? He wants your holiness more than you do. And he's God. He has all the resources of heaven, right? And as a response... I want to invite you today to do a couple things. This week, think about heaven. Think about the next life. Delight in that. Oh, man, it will be so nice when I'm not so tired when I wake up in the morning. Even the little things, you know, the toothache, the stubbed toe, whatever, even the little stuff. It's not going to be there anymore. And the big stuff. Your, your, your brokenness, your, your shame, your insecurity, your sin, the evil we see in the world every day, gone, completely gone. You know, Lewis again says that, you know, the people who had some of the greatest impact in this world, in this life, are often the ones who had their sights set on the next one. So think about heaven. And maybe right now, you can pray and ask God to put his finger on the places in your life where you're living inconsistently and ask him to uncover what beliefs are underneath that behavior. Maybe there's some targeted training for you in this next season. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for the Apostle Paul. Thank you, Father, for the people who have gone before us, who you spoke through uh, to bring these great truths uh, to our lives. And Lord, inasmuch as we, we confess that you are our God, we recognize that we don't always live like it. And Lord, we... Um, We rejoice that there's no condemnation in this. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. But Lord, that you are for us. And you call us to a holy life. You call us to a holy life, God. And that holy life is freedom. It's joy. It's it's, it's what we were saved to. And so, Father, we want that. We want that this morning. Would you speak to us, Holy Spirit? Help us uh, today and this week and the weeks that follow to grow in godly behavior. Uh, We trust you for it. We thank you so much that you love us so much that you're going to invest in our lives uh, to bring about this, this great work of salvation and holiness in our hearts. So we bless you. We thank you. Help us respond now to your word. Christ's name. Amen.